Hey guys, this is Stephanie. And this is Tony. And we just wrapped up a pretty cool podcast with Thomas J. Ryan. He's an author and Civil War historian. Yeah, he wrote about codes, which is cool. We got to we got to talk about like how, how they did like old timey spying during the Civil War. Yeah, intelligence. Uh, you know, you don't really you think of intelligence as like a modern day thing, but really he is analyzing day by day what they did in the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, and there's tons of stuff about Gettysburg in here because he's one of those people who's like super into Gettysburg. And by one of those people, I mean like there might be, it's probably easier to describe people who aren't super into Gettysburg than who are. Well, Gettysburg is a really cool place. And I think one of the things that he described sort of right at the beginning of the podcast was how enchanting Gettysburg is. And for me, I know I've been there several times and every single time I'm just, um, it's, it haunts me. I'm hooked. I, I love it. So I totally get, you know, where he's coming from with that. So enjoy enjoy him. We, we want you to listen to him. We also want to ask you, pretty please with sugar on top, to go to iTunes and to write us a review and to give us a couple stars. I'm thinking five? We prefer five. <laughs> we would definitely not prefer one star. No, not one star. Um, one of the things that you, you can do is just, just write us a note. And if you'd like, you can actually send us messages. on. You can say, hey... Love the show, you know. Why does Tony's voice sound the way it was? And if you if you ask us questions, we will answer them. Uh, if you ask us questions in the comments, we'll a- we'll answer them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what: if you do a review, we will send you an email and find out at where you are and send you a limerick and a haiku. Yeah, because we're still doing that, and we actually are a little backed up. We you are. Know, so we, we've got about three or four haikus we need in limericks. Really? We need, yeah, we've got a couple we need to get out. So mm. I'm going to make that my homework this weekend. Yeah. So so if you're if you're waiting on a haiku, they are by the time you hear this, certainly you'll have it. You'll have it. You'll have it. And so stop whining. You already have it. Yeah, that's 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 the way it's going to go. <laughs> All right. Here's Tom Ryan. Lee depended so heavily on his cavalry, General Jeb Stuart. On the way north, coming up from Fredericksburg, he was going to take a shortcut through the Union Army, which was stationary, sitting in front of Washington, D.C., because the job one of the Army was to protect the Capitol. But the Union Army started marching northward before he was able to get through, so he was separated, and Stuart's cavalry was on the right side of the Union Army, the rest of the Confederate Army was on the left side, so they were separated. And Stuart did not arrive in Gettysburg until the second, almost at the end of the second day of battle. So Lee, depending on Stuart almost exclusively for intelligence, had no intelligence because Stuart wasn't there. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author and Civil War historian Thomas Ryan. He has published more than 125 articles and book reviews on the Civil War, and writes a weekly column called Civil War Profiles for Coastal Point Newspaper. His new book, titled Spies, Scouts, and Secrets in the Gettysburg Campaign, focuses on the ways in which the Confederacy and the Union gathered and used intelligence information. So welcome to the podcast, Tom. It's good to be here. Why, of all the Civil War, why this particular battle? What was it about Gettysburg that just drew you in to write such an extensive 
book about it. Gettysburg is, is a kind of a magical place. When you, when you go there and you learn what actually took place, it was the uh, deadliest battle of the Civil War. There was almost 50,000 men were either killed, wounded, or captured. And, of course, it was, it was a turning point in the Civil War as well. If the Confederates had won that battle, uh, we may not have the country we have uh, today, all, all 50 states. There would probably be at least two countries, if not more, sure. uh, at that point. So it is a place that it draws you back a time, time and time again. I would estimate that I've been there at least 100 times. Wow. <laughs> wow. Maybe 150 over the years, over the last 20 years or so. Sure. Yeah, no, when you were saying Gettysburg is a magical place, I mean, I've been there several times myself, and it really is haunting. It's enchanting. It's You just go there, and you just, not to be precious about it, but there is, when you go there, there is something in the air. It definitely has sort of a, a vibe to it. And you know, there are a million ghost stories about Gettysburg as well. Indeed. One of the most popular touring activities up there are going on the ghost tours. And uh, almost this particularly young families, families with young children, I should mm. say, because they're, they're attracted to that kind of story. But when you read the books that have been published, and there have been quite a few that have been published about the ghost stories, you begin to think that there is something to this. It's <laughs> not just uh, you know ephemeral type uh, situation. That things have actually strange things have actually happened. As a matter of fact, I, I was talking with a woman just a few weeks ago who, was, who um, said that she had been to Gettysburg, she and her husband. I was coming out of church at the time at St. Anne's Church over in, in Bethany Beach, and she's, uh, she knew who I was, and we stopped and talked for a few minutes. She said she was telling me the story about smelling this gunfire or, or what smelled like gunpowder uh, gun sure. uh, while walking around the battlefield, and she reported it to one of the one of the rangers there and they said yes we hear about that all the time <laughs> yeah that there are that strange kind of phenomena that that takes place frequently you know at gettysburg how long have you been working on all of these stories because this is this is your second book so you've been writing for a while and you've been collecting these stories for a while what, what well this, this book actually them? evolved over a very long period of time right. i would say roughly 15 years now i started writing after i retired from the Department of Defense back in 1994, it was, so it's been a while. Yeah. I began writing for the Washington Times newspaper. Uh, they had a Civil War page, would you believe, a weekly Civil War page, and they solicited people who either traveled or uh, were interested in the Civil War. And I did a lot of traveling. Right after we retired, I convinced my wife to take a 30-day trip to all the Civil War battlefields around the country. <laughs> That's great. And we literally were gone for over a month. They traveled about 6,000 miles. I think it was. Anyway, after coming back, I there one story in particular was a battle at Franklin, Tennessee. It was very much like Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, <clears throat> where you know thousands of men were crossing the field and getting cut down by gunfire and artillery fire. I wrote a story about that and submitted it to... The Washington Times, and that was the beginning. And I wrote for them for about 12 years, actually, writing stories and doing book reviews. Mm. And I think over that period of time, I must have done at least 60 or 70 articles and book reviews. But that progressed. I then began writing for Gettysburg Magazine, just a magazine for 
specialists, those who really I deal. I cannot imagine the letters you get. If you, you can't get anything wrong in a thing like that, they'll hunt you down, right? That, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and this, that was the, the articles I wrote, uh, a, a series of five articles, very lengthy articles about Gettysburg, the intelligence operations, because no one else was writing about intelligence. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a, a, um, a forgotten uh, aspect of the, of the battle. And with my background in intelligence for 38 years, actually, uh, I decided to pursue that. And that's how the book evolved initially with the five-part series in Gettysburg Magazine. I just literally divided those up into chapters, the 17 chapters in the book, and researched it further. But the whole evolution, I would say, starting back in 1997 until it was published in 2015. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> now, having spent your life doing uh, intelligence work, were there any things that you saw in your research that like, still carry through as matters of practice? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, the organization, the intelligence staff for the Army of the Potomac, which is the Union Army that fought at Gettysburg, had... Um, developed a, a system whereby uh, they were able to pull together information using a variety of methods and a variety of sources. For example, the um, telegraph, they would use that for communication purposes. Signal Corps, they used flags for communication. And um, spies, scouts, as the title uh, indicates, and what they were able to do was to pull all this information together and write reports for the commanders. And there were succinct, specific, accurate reports that they would give to the commanders. And basically, this is what we do today. It's the same and, chain of command, just different technologies. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very different technology. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but that was the beginning. That was really the first... Um, intelligence operations staff of that magnitude for um, in the in the US military it was back during the civil war but it continued on on up to the present day and i guess that when you when you when you build an apparatus like that you you're constantly trying to improve it like i, I would imagine like during the revolutionary war just getting from place to place was considered intelligence right um, but in, in the Civil War, now that you have access to this technology and you have more, more coordinated planning and you're executing more co- coordinated planning, you're finding out how, what works and what doesn't, like the, the easy way and the hard way. And it's interesting that at, during the, the Gettysburg campaign, whereas the Union Army used intelligence extremely well, the Confederate Army did not. It was, it was almost like night and day. Now, Robert E. Lee, who was the commander of of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia hmm. was an excellent gatherer of information on his own back as a young man when he fought during the Mexican War and whatnot. But he never really developed the more modern type skills. He was still kind of back in the old days uh, using just basic communication by sending couriers to one place to another instead of using telegraph or the signal core mm-hmm. method of, of communicating. That was one of the reasons, reasons, as I explain in the book, why he lost the Battle of Gettysburg. 
And there was, there was a man who, a um, historian at the Army War College, who wrote about the Battle of Gettysburg, and he talked about Lee, and he said he was a man without intelligence <laughs> at, at, at the Battle of Gettysburg. That's funny. Can I ask you a question about the research? Because I read one of the reviews online, and it said that the amount of research that you pulled into it was encyclopedic. It was, you know, an archival-type work. Did you go to the archives? I mean, how did you go about pulling all of that well, stuff specifically together? specifically the National Archives. National Archives, it was, it's interesting because the records of the Bureau of Military Information, the BMI, was the, was the intelligence staff for the Union Army. Those records sat in the National Archives for almost 100 years, and no one knew they were there. That's crazy. And there was someone that, that worked in the Department of Defense was writing a book about intelligence during the Civil War and happened to come across these stacks of messages that were tied up in red ribbons and had been hidden somewhere in the corner of the National Archives. And that was the beginning of learning about this sophisticated operation that was lost to history up until this was back in the 1950s. But he covered a wide uh, spectrum of uh, battles where my book is the first book that's ever been written about a specific battle covering the intelligence operations on both sides, you know, the Confederate and the Union operations. So this is unique in that, in that, that respect, and I think that's one of the reasons why it did win two very prestigious awards. Does your publisher submit that? How does how does that work? How does how submit do people... two for the rewards? Yeah. Yes, they do. The, the publishers know where the awards are given out, and there are any number. I don't know really know how many, but I, I would guess at least ten or fifteen a year at various locations around the country. Now, the the two awards that this book won. One was the Batchelder Cottington Literary Award which is given by the uh, Robert E. Lee Civil War Roundtable in New Central New Jersey. And the other one was actually the Gettysburg Civil War Roundtable. That's they, a big game. That's a big That's a big deal. Yeah. That's, that's a yeah. big deal. Yeah. I mean, for, they call that the Distinguished Book Award annually. They have a banquet. And they, we, my wife and I went there, and it was very nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would think that, you know, a book about Gettysburg to win in Gettysburg, I mean, that you've got to be the cream of the crop at that point, or at least be viewed as... Being the cream, it was shocking. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When I received the phone call, (laughs) and and it's also not like only one book about Gettysburg comes out. No, no. no. I mean, when you talk about you know the this the canon of work, there was a lot of competition. Yeah, there's no question. Do you think the fact that you did both sides is is what set it apart from the other books? What about your what about your approach? Do you think set it apart? Because having a cool idea is one thing, and then executing it is something is something else altogether. So, Well, what I try to do is to identify the types of intelligence operations that were available to each side. At the beginning of the book, you go through that. There are eight different types of intelligence or sources of intelligence, and I explain how they worked, how well those particular armies used those forms of intelligence operations, and uh, then really literally went day by day, in some cases hour by hour, during the entire campaign, starting on June the 3rd, 1863, when the armies were still down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. They had Mm -hmm. to march a good 200 miles in some cases before they eventually ended up at this small town in southeastern Pennsylvania that 
that most people have never heard of before. But one of the reasons why they were drawn there because there were 10 roads leading to Gettysburg. Mm. And that was, from a military perspective, that was easy access and e- easy egress as, as well. Mm. So it was just a natural point, geographic point, to conduct the battle. Was there a terrain advantage at all that someone was able to take advantage of? Or was it, like, because you're giving me the impression that intelligence was, the, was kind of the key here. It was important for one of the armies to get there first and to get to the high ground. That's what I was, yeah, that's yeah, what I was The high about. ground was south of Gettysburg on Cemetery Ridge in Cemetery Hill. And it was fortunate for the Union Army because they had sent their cavalry, John Buford's cavalry division, arrived just in time because marching down the Chambersburg Road coming from the west was a Confederate brigade. And if they had reached the town, they would have taken control of the road system and probably would have noticed the high ground and would mm-hmm. have taken over the high ground. So that cavalry got there and held them off until the Union infantry arrived on the scene. And then they, uh, they had a battle. The Union lost about 10,000 men that first day. Wow. And the Confederates lost about 6,000. But the Union was able to fall back on Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill. And that pretty much helped to decide what was going to happen the rest of the, the other two days of the battle. Right. And Lee decided to attack. And it was a very difficult hill to take or ridge. Now, with regard to intelligence on this particular battle, it, the way that it kind of sounds is Robert Lee was kind of like, the buck stops with me. You know, he was sort of the centralized point. But what was it about the Union Army that made them so much more successful with intelligence? Because they had an intelligence staff where Lee did not have an intelligence staff. Lee served as his own intelligence officer. So he was getting whatever information he was getting generally from his cavalry. And there was the point of departure between the two because Lee depended so heavily on his cavalry. General Jeb Stewart was commander of his cavalry. On the way north coming up from Fredericksburg, he was going to take a shortcut through the Union Army, which was stationary, sitting in front of Washington, D.C., because the job one of the Army was to protect the Capitol. President Lincoln insisted they protect the Capitol. If they lost the Capitol, they'd probably lose the war. Right. Stuart was going to take a shortcut, but the Union Army started marching northward before he was able to get through, so he was separated, and Stuart's cavalry was on the right side of the Union Army. The rest of the Confederate Army was on the left side, and Stuart did not arrive in Gettysburg until the second, almost the end of the second day of battle. So Lee, depending on Stuart almost exclusively for intelligence, had no intelligence mm. because oh, wow. Stewart wasn't there. Right. So at the same time, the, the Union Army has a very sophisticated operation, gathering information, taking prisoners, interrogating these prisoners, finding out the strength, disposition, and intentions of the enemy, mm-hmm. and writing these reports and giving them to their commander, General George G. Meade, who had all this information. And he was factoring that into how he aligned his men in a particular case and was able to move men from one point to another more easily because they had captured the high ground, Mm. whereas the length of the line for the Union was about three miles. Length of the line for the Confederates was about six miles. So they had 
lot more area to cover and could not maneuver nearly as, as well. Listening to you talk, you're obviously very passionate about the Civil War. What about the Civil War was the thing that kind of drew you back in time? I attended a course while I was still working at Carlisle, the Army War College. We were there for about a week. It was just a management-type course. What they did was they took us to Gettysburg. It was called a staff ride. We spent the entire day explaining. It was a colonel who took us all down there. It was this group of civilians, actually, explained the, all three days of, of the battle, you know, how the military operations unfolded, the command decisions that were being made, and that lit a spark. And I began coming back again and again. I didn't live that far away. I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland at the oh, time. Okay. What they would have is Saturday seminars. You go up there, and for the, for the day, you, you pay your fee, whatever, to $75 or whatever, and they have the Rangers and or licensed battlefield guides those who are really familiar with the battle and know, know it inside out. And they would conduct a particular part of the battle on that, on that day and, and spend the morning indoors, classroom style, and then the, outdoor, uh, the, out, the afternoon outside on the battlefield, and they would take you around. And it was just marvelous. You know, you really, that's the way to learn yeah. You know, yeah. what, what really took place. I yeah. remember the first time I was in Gettysburg, I was a little kid and went on a family vacation. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, gosh, I don't know, I was probably 12, 13, something like that. And we did one of those tours where you have the, the top of the buses right. open and you have the headsets on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the bus would kind of snake down these little pathways and you'd go up into devil's was it devil's den devil's den, devil's devil's den. den and yeah. they'd kind of stop the bus and young had this... children really love devil's den yeah. all the rocks you can oh, the yeah rocks it's just i used to take my grandchildren up there a lot yeah it, and i just remember it is sort of the spellbinding yeah. there's well, they have what they call a work weekend and hundreds of people volunteer they come from all over the country and what they do is they paint barns they rebuild the fences they repair homes that are you know, still on the battlefield. Mm. And I used to take my family up there every year. I can't, but the grandkids just loved you know, going up there. Now, as far as collecting the stories, um, we were talking a bit beforehand, and I overheard this. You're, you're still writing for Coastal Point? I do. Um, but you, many of these stories had been published. This is almost like a collection, and I'm always... I'm always really fascinated by the idea of publishing a bunch of stuff, like reorganizing things that you've already had published into into a book form. Did you have to make any tough decisions, or did you use everything you had? The publisher has an editor, mm-hmm. of course. What he did was to recommend the cut cut back a lot on some of the foot the length of the footnotes, mm-hmm. shifting some of the information back into the text itself, right. and just doing away with some of it. As well, I kind of like to uh, provide information in the footnotes that explains more about what's taking place. Otherwise, well, this book is almost, I forget how many, it was 500 pages, I think. Wow. So, yeah. In order to keep the length of the book down to a reasonable yeah. size. <laughs> Instead of but, a thousand pages. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the professionals, back. you know, the, right. the editors help you along on, on, with that regard. And uh, how did you shop the book around? How did you find a publisher? Through friends who had already published. Well, this is Savas Baby mm-hmm. is the name of the publisher. It's out in California. It's a niche publisher. They, I, I see that the, the independent, scholarly, and a little bit old-fashioned. Ted Savas is quite an interesting character, as a matter of fact. The deep-sea diver and you know that kind of thing. And he also plays in a band, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, he's become very successful. Uh, it was Salvas Beatty. His partner passed away a couple of years ago, so he's really running the uh, company. But they have a, they have an excellent staff that I deal with constantly. But they, they have uh, progressed in that they're becoming more well-known. And most of the people that are publishing Civil War books these days are going with Salvas Beatty, it seems. Mm. Well, it's a good-looking book. I mean, the, the, the cover, the... The, the yeah, Steve jacket. Stanley did the cover. He did a, a marvelous job. Yeah, and I think that helps, you know, if you're going to say, hey, I have this book about this topic that's going to be dissected as people who are Civil War buffs. I mean, they will descend upon and rip things apart. But to have it look yeah. good and to, you know, have all of the... The, the data, all the data points being completely accurate. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's. I was very big. pleased with, with the with the with the book cover. And now, it's, can you talk about the other one, the essays on Delaware? That was your first book. Yes, it was. And how did you put that together? And how did you get that published? That is a collection. Uh huh. That collection of my article, the first thirty-eight articles that I wrote for the Coastal Point. Ah. And I divided them up into military, political, military, and social. Social meaning the home front. Mm -hmm. So you get a little bit of, of everything. And the stories about the Fort Delaware. Fort Delaware is the prison, the Confederate prison up here in Delaware City. A marvelous place to visit, by the way, if you haven't been there. Also I'm a member, of the, a member of the Fort Delaware Society, gotcha. by the way, which is a support group. That's mm -hmm. like group the like. Uh, Gettysburg. I've been a member of the Friends of the National Parks at Gettysburg for about 30 years now. They now call themselves the Gettysburg Foundation. And they were responsible, by the way, for the construction of the brand new visitor center there that was completed in 2008, I believe it was, $130 million. Wow. And the friends were supportive of that of that operation. And um, what have you been doing to get the word out about your book? Like, do you do, um, does the publisher book all your talks? Have you been booking any on your own? I do. A, I do a lot of speaking. Yeah. I go all over the state, libraries. I'll be going to Chicago in May. Wow. To the, uh, the Lincoln Davis Civil War Roundtable there. I was up in uh, Gettysburg just recently, get the Civil War Roundtable. I've been in New Jersey. I have a pretty heavy schedule. Yeah. I, yeah. I speak often locally, too. I over here at Bayside, they call it the Bayside Institute. Yeah, and it's like a continuing learning and different things that they yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And about four or five times a year, I go over there and, and give talks. But I've been to all the local libraries. And, you know, it does help to promote, gets the word out. But I've done a lot of interviews like this. I've done TV interviews. I was interviewed by the Spy Museum up in Washington. They did a, a podcast about a year ago. And I did the um, Pennsylvania equivalent of C-SPAN, Pennsylvania's. Oh, yeah, the you know, public access or the... I wanted to know, I, I meant to ask this question before when it was relevant, but I'm going to ask it now because I want to know the answer. What were the ciphers like? Were they super complex or were they super simple? Because I'm thinking like if you're doing semaphore, you may not have a very, very difficult code or... Well, well the Union uh, codes and ciphers were a little more sophisticated than the Confederate. The Confederates used a basic diplomatic uh, cipher and it was easily broken. Hmm. Uh, whereas the uh, the Union had, as I mentioned, a little more sophisticated, using the Signal Corps. The Signal Corps had its own system of coding. It was a binary system of flag on one side, flag on the other, and it was a combination of the letters of the alphabet and the, and the numbers. And they changed that code periodically. So the other side would break that code or learn that code mm -hmm. through some method or another. They, they changed it again. 
And you were saying earlier that your book covers the three days, but does it cover any of the uh, espionage from before, like getting ready to go to Gettysburg? It actually covers the entire campaign. Oh, all right. And beginning beginning on June the 3rd. So it, it took them almost an entire month to go all the way up into Pennsylvania before the battle was, was conducted. And there's a lot of intelligence. That's what I was wondering for the whole all trip. All during that time, there were number of battles and skirmishes, both going and coming. After the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a 10-day retreat and pursuit that was quite involved. And as a matter of fact, my latest book, I'll give a plug. Uh-huh. <laughs> Please do. I, I'm writing with a co-author, Richard Schaus, a friend of mine from West Virginia. We were co- uh, collaborating on a book called um, 11 Fateful Days in July 1863, mm-hmm. Meade Tracks Lee after Gettysburg. And what it is, it's about Lee's attempt to escape, get back across safely across the Potomac River after being defeated at Gettysburg. And Meade's job was to pursue him and not to allow him to get across that Potomac River. Right. So that's, that's what the story is all about. That's not as well-known a story? Is that is that the case? The, the escape? Yeah. The, the uh, aftermath of the battle? Mm-hmm. It has not been covered in depth by very many authors. A few years ago, there was an excellent book called Retreat from Gettysburg. But that focuses primarily on the Confederate side. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rick and I are focusing more on the Union side of the of the uh, aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, because that story really has not been told in sufficient depth. And do you already have research about, for instance, the intelligence they were using to, to track to track Lee. I do. As a matter of fact, this book talks a, a, oh. about that aspect of it. It goes all the way th- through the 14th of July when Lee actually does escape. They'll mm-hmm. give, a, give the story. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> There's still more, t- more to the story, mm-hmm. let's, let's say. That's what we're working on. We're do- doing in-depth research, and uh, hopefully it will add something new. Do you know what won't be new to the Gettysburg story? Our limericks and our haikus. Absolutely, because they are terribly, terribly old. But if you want one anyway, how do you get one? Well, if you like the show and you like what you're hearing, you can go to so what's your story podcast.com. If you click on the Contact Us button, you can put your name, your email, and you can pick a word. And Tony will make it into a limerick. I will make it into a haiku. We'll put it on a postcard, slap a stamp on it, and put it in the mail to you. We'll pay a man to bring it to your house. Just like it's 1883. Yeah, why not, right? Why not, right? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right, Stephanie. Now, this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio And if you feel like it, then feel free to give us a great review. Tell your story.